A few weeks ago, I preached on uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, about bearing one another's burdens in Christ. And we talked at that time about the paradigm shift that this requires in us, to see the burdens of others as opportunities for life, rather than as liabilities to be avoided in our lives. Paul says that when we live this way, bearing each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is to say that when our lives are oriented to the needs of others, We are walking in the way of Jesus and in the life of Jesus. So we're coming back to this theme today from a slightly different angle. Our passage is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you've got your Bible or a Bible on your phone, please open that up and follow along with me. And then after digesting these two verses or running through them a bit quickly, I want to then take a 30,000-foot view of the next several chapters in Romans to see how Paul describes the Christian life for us and the Christian life, the transformed life to which he exhorts us in these first two verses. And what we'll find as we look at these passages from a broad perspective is that the call to prioritize and embrace the other is the dominant theme, which means, therefore, that it's incredibly important for us as we think about what it means to follow Jesus today and live our lives today. So, this is the plan. First, with the lens focused on Romans 12, 1 and 2, we'll consider the call to be transformed. And then second, we'll look at the next several chapters and find the orientation to the other that is entailed in Paul's description of this transformed life. And then finally, I want to conclude with a few ideas and helpful, I hope, suggestions for how we might live this way a bit more in our daily lives today. So, that's the plan. So first, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a call to be different, to be made new, to be changed, to be transformed. And the ground of the calling is God's mercy, through the mercy of God. Uh, I've had the experience of getting pulled over and having the officer get my license and registration and then go back to the car and I'm sitting there kind of sweating it out and he comes back and he says, I'm going to give you just a warning today. And it's a nice feeling. It's a great feeling, actually, when you know you were guilty and you get off the hook. That's the kind of feeling that's at the heart of the Christian life. The mercy of God. We were guilty, deserving of punishment. Paul's just been speaking about, writing about this at the end of chapter 11, that God has mercy on all. He's consigned all the disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And that sense of receiving a gift, receiving forgiveness, receiving freedom when we were bound because of our actions, that's mercy. And that's the feeling that's at the heart of the Christian life. That has to drive all Christian living, that sense of gift of receiving something we didn't deserve, of not getting what we did deserve. And Paul's argument here is that mercy is the launch pad for a transformed life in Jesus. And he goes in two stages in these first two verses. The first stage uh, is in verse 1, where he says that the recipient of this gift is to offer, we are to offer ourselves, our bodies, to God. He uses this expression of a living sacrifice, which communicates a complete handing over, a thing that's sacrificed is given over completely to the deity to which it's sacrificed. And that's Paul's main idea in using this cultic expression, 
and your body, which means your entire embodied person who lives in the, in the, in the world of space, time, and matter. Hand over your person to God, this God of mercy. And when you do, verse 2, and this is the second stage of the opening argument, that will lead to nonconformity to this age. The word there that's often translated world, do not be conformed to this world, is really the age. Do not be conformed to this age, which is the world under the power of sin and the influence of sin. God's good purposes and designs in his world are distorted by human beings' disordered loves. And the chief of these disordered loves is the love of self. This is how Augustine puts it in the city of God. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. 1,100 years after Augustine, Luther makes this observation in his lecture on Romans. Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. I was gardening uh, about eight days ago. I had an opportunity to see this kind of picture uh, of being curved in on ourselves. We have three garden boxes at our house. Two of them had, at the beginning of the season, the PVC tubes over the top that we could hang the bird netting on because if you don't hang bird netting, you don't have a garden, really. Um, So the third box, we had never done that. And so at the beginning of the season, after planting the seeds, we just threw the netting over it. And so I knew I needed to get to it, but it took me a lot longer, as is prone to happen in my life, with these kinds of tasks. And so last weekend, I was working. I had the PVC tubing, and I was going out to set this apparatus up so we could hang the bird netting. But of course, the plants had already begun to grow quite a bit, especially the pea plants. And if you know anything about pea plants, they're quite thin and, and, and they have tentacles and they grab onto things. And so as I came up to the, to the netting with my scissors, I had to cut this netting out or cut the netting out of the plants. And the pea plants in particular had just run into the little tiny squares of, of plastic netting. And as I got down into the situation more closely and I cut these little strips of netting, I found clusters and balls of pea plant, thick, that had just curved in upon themselves. The blossoms were still deep inside those clusters, but I guarantee you there was no way they were going to produce any vegetables um, in that way. And that's a kind of picture of what sin does to humanity. Instead of being outwardly oriented and bearing fruit, we get curved in upon ourselves because of the netting of sin cast around us. But the beauty of the gospel, of God's work, is that his mercy frees us from this, this way. This, this being curved in by his mercy. And so Paul says we're not to be conformed to the world that's curved in upon itself, but instead we're to be transformed, verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. Renewing the mind. This means thinking out the implications of the life of the Spirit in the present day. It means prayer and deep wrestling with Scripture within the community of the church, reflecting on the world and our lives, using the best of our reason to discern the will of God and to act upon that. I I do think this is a work that too few of us are willing to do oftentimes. We don't like being reflective, and so this is a passage that chastens us in a way and calls us to think deeply about the kind of Christian life that we're called to live, about what is the will of God, that which is good and well-pleasing and perfect, as Paul says in verse 2. 
But more than just thinking, as we think about the mind of Christ, I want to argue that it's actually something that's a gift as well. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul says this is a gift that's been given. And when Paul's reflecting on the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, when he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, it really means think the same things among yourselves that were also a part of Christ. It's it's a, a verse that mentions the mind. He then goes on to describe that that mind of Christ, those thoughts of Christ, led to what? They led to the self-emptying, obedient, humble action of Christ taking the lowest place and going to the cross. Not taking what he had and using it to his own advantage, that would be curved in upon oneself, but taking what he had and pouring it out for the sake of the world. So what this means is the simple-minded saint in God's church, who practically embodies Christ's self-emptying love, may in fact be far mature and Christ-like than the ivory tower theologian whose deep thinking has yet to permeate his or her, her practical life. The great thinking in the church of renewing our minds must always be oriented to renewed living, which means to love. Not simply love as a beautiful idea, but love as a practical, daily, costly, others-oriented reality. And this is the mind of Christ by which our lives are to be renewed and transformed. And I want you to see it as the opposite of humanity curved in upon ourselves. So this is the call to transformation. Don't be like the pea plant curved in on itself. But instead, be like Jesus laying down your life in self-emptying love. So then we expect, Paul doesn't just leave it at that and leave us to think it out. He actually then writes for the next three chapters a bit more specifics about what that new transformed life in Christ looks like. And my goal in this is not to get into the fine print, though each of these sections is worthy of a lot of study. But what I want to do is present a kind of cumulative case by taking this 30,000-foot view and walking through these chapters to convince us that the orientation to the other is the dominant theme of the Christian life as Paul envisions envisions it here in Romans. So that becomes readily apparent in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12 by a call to humility. Don't be proud. A reminder of our solidarity in one body. Don't be independent. You're linked. Your life is linked with others. And a reminder that our particular and diverse abilities and gifts and talents, those are gifts given to us by grace, which are to be used wholeheartedly for the sake of the body. So in thinking about the other, the other is now a part of you, and you are a part of him or her. Paul says we are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. The way I like to think about this is the Christian life is a group project, not an individual assignment. My daughter was in seventh grade this year in a large public school in Boston, and she had numerous group projects assigned to her, and it was infuriating and frustrating for her to try to get those group projects done because she had to coordinate schedules and because other kids in the seventh grade weren't pulling their weight. And so she had to step in and do You have had that experience as well. It's much easier to write a paper on your own than to come up with some group skit or video or music presentation, numerous things throughout the year that made me realize group projects are just inefficient and difficult. But that's what the Christian life is. It's a group project and you're stuck with each other. And your life needs to be oriented to those who are around you. 
The next section, a section of a stringing together of exhortations, verses 9 through 21. Just hear some of these for a moment and think, remember, we're just trying to pick out the threads of being oriented to the other. Think about these exhortations. Let love be genuine, not phony, not play acting, but from the depth of your being, pursue the good of the other. That's what love is fundamentally. It's oriented to the good of the other and it's laying down your resources, your thoughts, your actions for the sake of the good of the other. So Paul says, let love be genuine, be devoted to one another with brotherly love, familial warmth, he calls us to, not just duty, not just cold and detached, I'm going to seek your good, but with the warmth of a nuclear family. Show honor to others. How can you do that without others? The idea here is it's a competition. But in our world, we live in an age of self-promotion, of wanting the honor for ourselves. And what Paul calls us to here in the transformed life in the Spirit is to outdo each other in showing honor to the other person. Our job is to lift people up, not to lift ourselves up, but to lift the people in God's body up. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That means their needs have a claim on your resources. The other, again, infringing upon our life. Seek to show hospitality. Take your resources and make strangers friends. That's what hospitality is. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Their joy is your joy. Weep with those who weep. Their pain is your pain. Let their emotions impact yours. You can't fulfill those exhortations apart from an orientation to the other. Live in harmony with one another. Obviously, you can't do that without other people. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That is, don't climb the social ladders in all your relationships, but be willing to see, pour into, spend time with the people that our society have said are not worth that kind of investment. Associate, Paul says, with the lowly. And don't pay people back. That's how he ends this section, by taking revenge. Instead, love them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink, Paul says. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this orientation to the other even impacts the way you think about the other who is your enemy, which, of course, Jesus calls us radically, the most radical ethic at the heart of the Christian faith, to love our enemies. The section on government in chapter 13 is really about giving to others what is their due. And that's how Paul finishes that section. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor to whom it is owed. That's what that's essentially about, is to hand over to others what is their rightful due. And the government's uh, maintain justice and order. And so, of course, in a general sense, we're called to submit to the government. That's a way of being oriented to the other. At the end of chapter 13, Paul begins with verse 8 and says, Owe nothing, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. To love is to understand and to discern and to appreciate and to act for the other, having understood who the other is. That takes effort, that takes intentionality, that takes noticing, it takes studying perhaps. To know who the other is. To really live this life of love. And at the very end of the chapter, he says, instead of sexual immorality and sensuality, both of which will use the other for my gain or my pleasure, essentially, even if that's consensual, it's still the use of another body or person to gain my own pleasure. He says, instead of that, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who in chapter 15, verse 3, he says, 
that Christ Jesus did not please himself, but went to his death for our well-being. That's what I want you to be like, Paul says. The last section here is chapter 14 up to the halfway of, the, of chapter 15, and the key word in this section is welcome. It begins in 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And it culminates in verse 7 of chapter 15, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The stronger to welcome the weak, the weak, the strong. Remember that we are one body, is running throughout this text. And in the midst of this argument, Paul makes a radical statement that says your personal liberties take a secondary, a second place to love. So if by your exercise of your liberty, you actually hurt or wound your brother or sister in Christ, then Paul says, I want you not to take that liberty because ultimately I want you to act in such a way that it builds up your neighbor and lifts them up. So then, Paul writes, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding, chapter 14, verse 19. And then again in chapter 15, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Okay, I've run on along for a while on this, but what I want you to see is that Paul's vision of the transformed life in the spirit, a life that's experiencing the renewal of the mind and leading to nonconformity, to the curved in upon our self-humanity, is fundamentally being oriented in a radical way to the other in our lives. That's the chief mark of this kind of transformation. So how do we grow in this? It's my final part. Let me give you five basic thoughts here. They go see, reorient, think, pray, and act. This is a massive reorientation. Let's think first about seeing. Think about the way that you see. First, do you see God? And, and I mean this because, again, there's no progress in the Christian life. There's no, we cannot grow in our ability to become like Jesus unless we're flooded with an awareness of the mercy, love, and grace of our Heavenly Father. So that's the first place to start tonight. Do you see God in that way in your life? Do you see him as your father who's forgiven you, who's brought you freedom, who's given you his spirit, who's poured out and shed love abroad within your heart, who's filled you with life, who's restoring the years that the locusts have eaten, who satisfies you? And then do you see others it is impossible to have an others-oriented life of love unless we actually see them. Obviously, physically, you see them. But do we see people as God sees people? Do we see people with compassion, with empathy? Do we see people created to be known by God, to be loved by others, to encounter wholeness and holiness because of God? To be honest, one of the greatest barriers to seeing people, as I experience it in my own life, is busyness. My tasks, my deadlines, my overstuffed schedule can lead me 
to be very, very narrowly focused, to have a kind of tunnel vision in such a way that I can become blind to the others around me. And that turns the, when we think of life as our schedule, our agenda, our priorities, our tasks, it's turned the Christian life back into an individual assignment. It's no longer a group project. Are we willing to relax our own agendas and risk what that might mean for the sake of becoming more oriented to others around us? So that's C. Second, reorient. This is a massive reorientation. We are taught day by day, week by week, month by month, that what it is to live is to set our plans and our agenda and our goals in relative isolation from others around us. Maybe not our nuclear family, but certainly kind of that's the way we think. A selfward orientation is natural and expected in our world. And yet, while that may be the path of the modern American, it's certainly not the path of the new humanity that God has set out for us in his son. So here's my challenge, is today, start maybe tonight, tomorrow, begin to see others around you as the point of your life, and not simply as a sideshow or a distraction, or maybe just a special obligation in this particular moment this one time only, but see them as the main event. Pray for them. Have them in mind when you're doing your own work at the office or at home. Cry with them. That takes time, but do it. Rejoice with them. Welcome them. And reorient your life to the good of your neighbor. Third, think. I'm not ignorant of the fact that we have multiple kinds of responsibilities that God has entrusted to each one of us that require different things. We're called to the renewal of our minds, so we must think and think deeply to discover wisdom. What does it mean for me to be oriented radically to the other in this way that Romans 12 through 15 speaks about and still pursue the vocation that I believe God has called me to that requires study and effort and focus and determination to pursue excellence for his glory? How do I live in the tensions of multiple and competing responsibilities and not give in to just a self-centeredness that is so easily the default being curved in upon myself, but actually truly embody this other-centered love that I've been called to embody in Christ? That takes sustained thinking, and it takes thinking together in community because we are easily blind to issues in our own life. We need others around us to point out our blind spots, to think the hard things with us, to help us understand how can I walk down this path more fully without being unfaithful to the other responsibilities that God has called me to. That takes effort and thought. So think deeply, but think critically about the mainstream, main current orientation of life and this countercultural upstream version of downward mobility of pouring your life out for others and ask which one are we following. The fourth thing is pray. Start with confession. Confess your own sinfulness. Confess your sense of being curved in upon yourself. Be honest with God about the way that you really feel about others in your life. If you resent them, tell God so. If they exhaust you, tell him. Be honest with God about your fears of living in a radically radically others-oriented way. 
Tell him that you're afraid of what that would mean for your career or for your deadlines that week. Ask God to help you see and to help you trust. And then pray for his heart toward others in your life. Not in some vague way, oh God, let me see people, but in a very specific and particular way. Let me see my wife or my husband. Let me see my roommate. Let me see my coworker or my boss who annoys me or mistreats me. Let me see those who have wronged me. God, let me see those people and let me orient my life to their good. That's crazy, I realize, but that's the call. And if we don't get specific in particular about those prayers, then we'll never get specific in particular in our actions in the day-to-day world. God, you know who I'm interacting with. You know more than I do. God knows who will interrupt you this week. God knows who will call you this week when you don't have time. Lord, help me to have your heart when I encounter these people that you bring across my path. My, 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 my argument here is that if we seek a life of transformation apart from prayer, we will never make it very far. We constantly need to be confessing our shortcomings and our curved-in-upon-ourselves feelings about others and to be opening ourselves up to the power of God through prayer to move on this path of transformation. Finally, lastly, Act. Act in small and specific ways. As you reorient your life, as you see a different way, as you think this out, as you pray, finally act. Call the lonely person in your neighborhood group and take him or her out to coffee. Listen well to the coworker who is clearly in pain or struggling with insecurity. Respond to an email that someone puts out on the listserv for help instead of just thinking that everybody else will do it. Actually see that as an opportunity for you to get to serve and step in. Do the dishes for your roommates. Pray specifically for people in this community. My contention is that these little things, when strung together day by day, month by month, year by year, that they lead us ultimately to embodying the transformed life of God. A life of nonconformity to humanity curved in upon itself. A life of conformity to the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is a life lived in every moment, oriented not to me, but to you, to the others that are around me. As we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, as our minds are renewed, this, an others-oriented life, is exactly where this will lead us. My hope and prayer is that God will empower us by his spirit to embody this together. I want to close with this brief excerpt from a prayer from St. Augustine. May the, live, may the live coal of your love grow hot within my spirit and break forth into a perfect fire. Amen.